All right, John chapter 17, we'll be reading verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is praying what we refer to in theological circles as the high priestly prayer of Christ. What's going on here is Jesus has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and in, the, in that upper room, he instituted the Lord's Supper, where he gave forth the unleavened bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat this, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he passed around the cup, and he said, this wine is the, is the New Testament in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. He has prepared his disciples for the fact that he is about to be crucified, that he is about to die, that he is about to be buried that he will then resurrect and he will ascend to be at the right hand of the throne of God where he will ever live to make intercession for us. And one of the promises that Jesus made in that discussion he had with the disciples in the upper room is that when he goes, he's going to send the comforter unto us. That comforter is the Holy Spirit. And today we benefit and we are blessed by the leadership and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus concludes this discussion with the disciples by going to the Lord in prayer, by going to God in prayer, by lifting up his eyes to the Father and praying this great intercessory prayer. That word intercession is a fancy word we preachers like to use to make us sound educated. What it means is when you're interceding, you're praying on behalf of someone else. So if your prayer is an intercessory prayer, then you are praying on behalf of someone else. And Jesus here is praying on behalf of his disciples and he tells God in this prayer that he's not just praying for the disciples that are with him in the upper room. He is also praying for all those who would believe through the testimony of those disciples. That would be you and me. So he's praying for us. Can you imagine what it must have been like to hear Jesus pray? To hear Jesus pray for us. To hear Jesus pray for you. What must have that have been like? In this prayer... True to the form that he taught us in the model prayer, Jesus praises the Father for what he has done. He says, as thou has given him power, Jesus talking about himself, the Son of Man, as thou has given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Jesus is praising God for giving him power, and the power that Jesus has is to give us eternal life. Now, this word power that Jesus uses, we go back to the Greek language, and the word there is exousion. Exousia, exousion. What is that? That's, that's different from dunamis. Dunamis, we get the word dynamite from. Dunamis is miraculous power. That's turning water into wine. Uh, dunamis is making it rain and making it stop miraculously. Dunamis is telling the storms to be quiet, and the storms are quieted, although that also carries with it some authority as well. What Jesus uses here, the word he uses is exousian. Think of the word exert, okay? Exousian means authority. It's exerted authority. In this prayer, Christ praises God for giving him power, exousian, authority over all flesh. Christ has the power. Christ has the authority. And to truly witness the wonder of what Jesus is saying here, let's take a closer look at this verse. We're going to look at the power of God. Because in order for God to give the power to Christ, God has to first have the power. 
So we'll look at the power of God. And we'll look at the power that God gave to Christ, the authority that he gave to our Savior. And finally, we will see the power that God gave to Christ, that Christ in turn gave to man. Our Lord has given us power. And so we'll talk about that this morning. First, let's talk about the power of God. Again, for God to give power to Jesus, God must have first possessed the power and the authority to give away. Jesus said, and thou has given him power over all flesh. You cannot give power that you do not have. God has power. His power is inherent. That means it is, by definition, God has the power. All power ultimately belongs to God. And God gave power to Christ. The power belongs to God. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 4 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. The world belongs to the Lord. That's what the psalmist said. He says the earth is the Lord's. The world belongs to the Lord. The earth, the ground, the planet, the creation belongs to the Lord. And all they that dwell therein, that means we belong to the Lord. And those who, not, who do not believe in the Lord, they belong to the Lord also. He owns the world and everything in it. Why? Because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. You see, God made the heavens and the earth. That, that's the first thing the Bible tells us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When the Apostle John sought to tell us who Jesus is, so he wrote the gospel according to John, where he starts out with was, in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and he made everything, and without him was not anything made that was made. When the Bible starts out to tell us about God, who God is, who Christ is, the story of our redemption, it begins with the creation. And the gospel according to John also begins with the creation because we have to get something through our heads. The world belongs to God. He created it. He owns it. He makes the rules. We belong to God. He created us. He owns us. He makes the rules. In fact, we kind of owe it to God to belong to him because the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that he breathed into the nostrils the breath of life and so man became a living soul. Did you wake up this morning? You did because you're here. Now, some of y'all may be going back to sleep. But you did wake up this morning and you woke up this morning with an illuminated life with an animated life, what I mean is when you woke up, you woke up with the ability to reason, to feel, to think, to dream, to create, to love, to adore, to hope for, to wish for. You woke up with all of these abilities that are characteristic of a living soul, and it was God who created you to be a living soul. Of course, he has authority over our lives. He's the one who gave us a life in the first place. He created it, he owns it, he makes the rules. In Genesis chapter 3, the woman saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes, was good, for, was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. 
It looked good. It tasted good. And by eating this, it would make her wise. Satan had told her that if she ate that fruit, she would be as gods, knowing good and evil. And Adam's sitting there listening to this. He's like, hmm, this sounds like a pretty good plan. What Satan told Adam and Eve was when you eat of this fruit, you're going to know it all. And you're not going to need God to tell you what to do and what to not do. When man ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, it was not just breaking a simple rule. It was not staying out past your curfew. It was not eating candy before dinner. It was not these little disobediences. What they were doing was they were attempting to elevate themselves to the level of God so that they would not have to listen to God. God created the earth. He created creation. He created man. He breathed in the, into the man's nostrils the breath of life so that man became a living soul. And what man sought to do was to shirk God's authority right out of his life. The first thing we did was rebel against the authority of God. But God, in his power and by his grace, made a way for man to ascend into his holy hill and to stand in his holy place by giving his only begotten son to bear the penalty and the price of the rebellion that man has had against God. When you read about the redemption of man from sin, when you read about the sin that God redeems us from, he does not redeem us from the sin of listening to rock and roll. He does not redeem us from the sin of watching PG-13 movies. He does not redeem us from the sin of staying out past my 9 o'clock bedtime of saying a bad word, of smoking a cigarette, or drinking a beer. These are all things you should not be doing. But that's not the sin that he redeems you from. He redeems you from the sin of outright rebellion against him. Amen. Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 does not say all we have gone off smoking cigarettes, all we have gone off saying cuss words, all we have gone off drinking beer, all we have gone off rooting for the Washington Redskins. Those aren't the sins that we're being redeemed from. We're being redeemed from turning away from God and turning to our own way and rebelling against his authority in our lives. God's authority is absolute. It is inherent. He has it. He did not earn it. He does not strive for it. He does not work to keep it. He just has it because he created all things and therefore all things are under his control. And there are no other gods and there are no other options. Isaiah 45, 22 says, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. God's power and his position are unchallenged because there are no other gods. And therefore, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to being redeemed and forgiven for the rebellion we have against him, he's our only option to turn to the Lord. There are no other deities. There are none. The Hindu gods don't exist. Allah does not exist. He's not just how the Muslims know God. That's not just the name that they call him. You look at the characteristics of who they describe, it's not him. Y'all know there's somebody else named Leland that lives in Brown County. Y'all know that? Now, you may walk up to somebody and you may say, I know Leland, and they may say, I know him too. Now, is, they, is that person you're talking to talking about me? Or are they talking about this other fella? Now, this other fella is athletic. 
This other fellow's younger than 20 years old. You start talking about the attributes of Leland, and you start telling them about a 44-year-old overweight pastor, they start telling you about a 19-year-old high school basketball player, you're going to figure out you're not talking about the same guy. Allah is a different God altogether, but he doesn't exist. Buddha was just a man. He, he, he doesn't even exist anymore. By their own religion, he doesn't even exist anymore. We just have his words. Confucius, the same way. We can go through all the list of all the religions of the world. They don't exist. Satan, he exists as a being, but he is not a deity. There is not an ongoing battle between God and Satan where they're each struggling to get the upper hand. God has infinite power over Satan. Satan has to obey God. Therefore, it makes sense to only worship and to only turn to our Lord, to our God, to the one who truly has the power, the one who truly has the authority. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. Neither are my, your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's power, his ability, his authority is far above us and anything that we can imagine. Our wisdom cannot even compare. In fact, if we want to be honest about things, our wisdom, true wisdom, comes from God. The wisdom that is from above is first peaceable, then pure. Or it's first pure, then peaceable. But the wisdom is from above. Amen. You know, Job, we tell that story in Sunday school to kids, that God and Satan had a bet that if God took all of Job's um, blessings away from him, that Job would curse God. And Satan posed that to God, and God said, game on. And Satan took everything away from Job. That's the way we tell it in Sunday school, right? And Job didn't curse God. And look at how good Job is. Job lost his kids. He lost his health. He lost all his money. He lost his house. He lost everything. But he never complained. Well, that's if you quit reading it, chapter 5. Job's friends come over. There's 42 chapters there. Job's friends come over and they start telling Job, you must have sinned. And Job's like, no, I didn't. Yeah, you did. No, I didn't. Bad things wouldn't be happening to you if, you'd, if you hadn't have sinned. By the way, that's false logic. Job's like, honestly, I didn't sin. And here they go, back and forth. And before you know it, Job's like, you know what? I have lived for God. I have worshipped him. I have been righteous. I have done everything I'm supposed to do, and I lost everything. Can somebody please tell me the point of all of this if I was just going to lose everything anyway? I knew a woman who lost her husband. They were a ministerial couple. They served God. They sought to honor and glorify him with their lives. He was in his 40s. He suffered a stroke. He died. She mourned. She mourned with hope. She mourned as godly as anyone can be expected to mourn in that situation. But at some point, she asked the question, what was the point of all this? What was the point of all this? Did her faith fail? No, but she had a question. Job is sitting there, one thing I would contend with the Lord. You see this in the later chapters. One thing I would ask of the Lord. One thing I would contend. And then in Job chapter 40, God shows up. And he says, Job, buddy, you have some questions. Let's talk about it. Ask your questions. But I got a couple for you. Were you there when I founded the earth upon the seas? Were you there when I created the universe? Were you there when I hung the stars in the sky? Are you able to take these giant beasts? If you read the descriptions of the beasts, they sound an awful lot like dinosaurs. Are you able to take these gigantic beasts that no man can tame and make them do exactly what you want them to do? Are you able to do all this? Come on, Job. Let's talk about this. You want to reckon with me? Let's reckon. 
And in Job chapter 40, verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he contend with the Almighty, instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer. You got some ideas for me, Job? Let's hear them. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. If we truly understood who God was, we wouldn't be questioning him. Why would God allow 9-11 to happen? Why would God allow the suffering in the world? What does God think he's doing? Who are we to ask the question? The power and the authority is all his. The wisdom is all his. His wisdom is far and above anything we can imagine. All we can do and what's best for us is to just trust that wisdom and follow it. Job chapter 42, verse 5, after this, now Job and God have a conversation for a couple of chapters, and Job learns a lot of lessons. And in Job chapter 42, verse 5, Job says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Job always knew God. He knew what the scripture said about God. He worshiped God. He heard the preaching about God, but he never truly got to know God face to face, but that happens today. That happens today because Job saw the power and the authority of God on full display. And seeing God in his infinite wisdom in this moment, God, Job saw God for who he truly was. And so Job is just going to surrender to God and trust him and follow him. We don't understand the things that go on in the world. We don't understand the things that go on in our lives. There are hymns that talk about that often we wonder while others prosper, though in the wrong, right? Do we not wonder why people who seem to be ungodly and people who seem to be downright satanic seem to prosper and seem to have victory? And then here we are worshiping the Lord, and sometimes it feels like we don't get a victory, that we, don't, we, we know we have spiritual victories, we know we have blessings waiting for us in heaven, but we want some sort of tangibility, some sort of affirmation in this world. We want God to tell the world, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. And that moment doesn't come. And what's up with that? But we need to know that God is infinitely wisdom and he is infinitely wise and he is infinitely powerful and he has the authority and he is working the plan and the plan is working according to his will and it's a perfect plan and that everything that he works in our lives comes together for our good according to Romans 8.28. And that good is ultimately our being welcomed into his kingdom. But the power belongs to God. And then God gave power to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 17, 2, as thou hast given him power over all flesh. God has given Jesus power over us all, authority over us all. Therefore, we are to be obedient to him. Jesus is not just a servant that came along who served God well, and then we're to forget about him. He did some great things first, but now we're to focus back on God and forget about Jesus. Jesus is who it's all about. The power and the authority has been given to Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Do the word study on that. Go back to the Greek. It comes back to exousian. We're talking about authority again. Jesus saying in Matthew 28, 18, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This authority is given to Christ over everyone and everything 
Only God the Father has greater authority, and he has made Christ his equal. The authority has been given to Christ. And it will be Christ whom we face on Judgment Day. We're not going to stand before God and God show us a picture of Jesus on the cross and saying, what did you do about this guy? We're going to be standing in front of Jesus who died on the cross, who still has the nail scars in his hands, the holes in his feet, the scar in his side. We are going to be standing before God with the visible marks of our redemption on his body and we will have to give an account for whether or not we accepted his salvation, we trusted in his payment on the cross, whether or not we were obedient to him. In John chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, Jesus says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. God has given Jesus all power over earth, and we are to honor God by honoring Jesus. And we are to honor Jesus by trusting in him, believing in him, and obeying him. And the commandments that he gave us are to love one another, agape love one another, to love each other. He said that's what's going to prove whether or not you are truly my disciples. Are you truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church and wish that everybody else was as spiritually mature as you are, was as understanding as you are, was as graceful and forgiving as you are, was as liberated as you are, was is as enlightened as you are? If you're looking at your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're looking down on them, then that is a pretty good indication that you are not loving them. If you are looking at your brothers and sisters in Christ and you are considering their background, their upbringing, their frame of reference, their point of view, and you are understanding of them, then that's a pretty good indication that you are loving them. And if you are loving them, that's a pretty good indication that you are indeed a child of God and that you do know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that you are indeed a disciple. Jesus told us to love one another. He told us in Matthew 28 to make disciples to teach others the gospel, to teach others to believe, to teach others to follow. And he has told us to follow and to learn. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And he hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. There is no one more qualified to judge us than Jesus who is the Son of Man, who is God in flesh, who is in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin, who is sympathetic, who is empathetic, who understands our background, understands our brokenness, understands our fallenness, but has also gone through everything so he knows whether or not there are excuses. There is no one more qualified than Jesus to judge us who went to the cross where he bore the punishment for God on behalf of mankind so that our sins could be forgiven, could be paid for, could be wiped clean, and that we could stand before the Lord in confidence on that day. The power has been given to Christ, and we are to follow and trust Christ because he has the authority. Amen. And then we see the power that Christ gave to us. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Notice that word, the power to become the sons of God, 
even to them that believe on his name. But as many as received him, accepted his truth, accepted his death on the cross as the payment for their sins, and have trusted in his name. Why do you think God will let you into heaven? What's the logic here? Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Why would God let you into heaven? Because I went to church. Okay, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You're bringing church attendance to the table? I gave money to the church. Jesus suffered the wrath of God on your behalf. What kind of a price tag are you putting on that to give to the church? I've never seen a donation that large. I've never read about a donation that large. Jesus suffered a grueling death to cleanse you of your sin. What do you bring to the table? God looks at you and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Jesus says, looks at you and says, why should I let you in? What's your answer? The way you answer that question is what you are depending on to get you into heaven. And any faith that misses the price that Jesus paid on the cross for your sins misses the entrance ramp to heaven. <clears throat> to those who received him, gave he the power, there's that word again, to become the sons of God. That word power, Greek word, guess what I found? Mm -hmm. Exousian, authority. To those who received him, he gave the authority to become the sons. And by sons, we mean children, Greek language. If there are men and women in one group, then you use the masculine form of the noun. And it got translated in English as the sons, but the daughters are not excluded here. So the sons and the daughters, or the children of God, to those who received him, gave he the power to become the children of God. He gave the authority. You know what? He gave the right to become the children of God. And that may sound a little blasphemous. Leland, do we have any rights that, that, to, to the kingdom of God? You have the rights that God has given you. The founding documents of this country say that God created man, that, that uh, God created all men equal, and that men have been, and women, have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, rights that no man has the ability or the, or the right or the moral right to take away the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And man, we worship that in this country, especially in this part of the country. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Don't you dare infringe on any of that. But more importantly than the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a detail that was left out of the Declaration of Independence and was not even mentioned in the Constitution of the United States. I've never read the Texas Constitution because that's a garbled up, grammarly mistake waiting to happen. Trust me on this. The first sentence is 150 words long, okay? The first sentence is more than most term papers. All right, so let's just forget that. More important than the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is the right to become a child of God, a right in which Christ has endowed upon you if you receive him and if you believe upon his name. Christ has given you the power of salvation through his gospel. His death on the cross purchased that right, and his resurrection maintains that right. 
We have rights in this country. We have freedoms in this country. And those freedoms were defended on the battlefield by the greatest generation in World War II. The greatest generation. They did so much for our country. Our country would not be what it was had it not been for those men who at the age of 16 lied about their age so they could join the Marine Corps so they could go to a trench somewhere and put their lives, most of them, many of them not even making it back, so that we could enjoy this peace and prosperity we enjoy today, which, by the way, has been under the provisional and blessed hand of God, and that he has allowed this and that he has cultivated this. But all those men who died in the trenches in World War II to purchase our freedoms, who we memorialize on that last Monday of the month of May every year, and we remember on November the 11th every year, those men... Most of them have passed on because that generation is passing away. That's just where we are in time. They cannot do that again for us. But Jesus Christ gave his life to give us the power, the authority, the right of salvation. But he was raised up from the dead and he ever lives to make intercession for us. That means he pleads our case on our behalf before God. And that because he lives... We can face tomorrow. That's a wonderful hymn. But because he lives, he continually defends that right to salvation to everyone who believes. You have the power of God unto salvation. You have the authority and the right to believe and the authority and the right to be saved if you believe. Have you executed that right? Have you exercised it? Have you realized it? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And if you have not made that decision to turn from your sins and to trust Jesus to receive you into heaven because of what he did on the cross, let today be the day of your salvation. He has given you the power to be saved. He has given you the power to further his kingdom. Brother Ron preached a, be preached a beautiful prayer, prayed a beautiful prayer, which was also something of a sermon, which is why I like when Brother Ron prays. He said that, uh, that this offering would be used to further your kingdom, to further your kingdom. You know, we have the power to further the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he said, all power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, I've got the power, I've got the authority, Jesus says, so you go, I'm giving you this authority to go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. We have the power and the authority to further the kingdom of God. And how do we further the kingdom of God? Well, we've got to win the election. No, elections are irrelevant to this mission. They're nice, but they're irrelevant to this mission. To further the kingdom of God, what we need to do is make disciples. What's that mean? What's discipleship mean? You hear that buzzword thrown around churches all across the country. All across the country, people are preaching churches about discipleship. What does it mean? It means to mentor that means to bring someone alongside you. Mm -hmm. Teach them about the Lord. Teach them about the gospel. Teach them about salvation. This is something you do on a personal level, one-to-one. -one. Right. We want to reach more people as a church. Our people need to be in the business of mentoring others. And they may not come to church that Sunday. And they may not come to church for a year. And they may not come to church for 10 years. They may never come to church. That's okay. I'd like to see them here. Yes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that church attendance is not important. What I'm saying is what's more important than church attendance is whether or not someone's being mentored. And I believe, and I believe wholeheartedly, that if someone is truly being mentored, if someone is truly being discipled, they will find their way into a church. Amen. 
when I was saved, I couldn't stay in church good, strong uh, consistently enough. And when I was saved, I couldn't get to the baptismal quick enough. To make disciples, to baptize, to teach. Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19. Jesus said, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You look at the Greek. The nickname that Jesus had that's translated Peter means a little rock. Peter's a fisherman. Jesus is running around calling him pebbles. Jesus said, you're a pebble. But on this rock, different Greek word, for bigger, stronger, bolder, will I build my church. The rock that the church is being built on is not Peter. It's Christ. On this rock, will I build my church. But Jesus told Peter and the apostles, and by extension us, that he would give them the keys to the kingdom. That's the authority. And he says, Whatsoever thou shalt bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And people have made this a jacked up thing where the church can do whatever it wants to and God's just going to go along with it. And that's wrong. Because you see God in the book of Revelation, he's getting onto some churches because they're doing some things that he said no to. No, whatever we bind on earth will be bound up in heaven. What does that mean? It means when we bind up a believer's salvation through teaching them the gospel, their salvation is bound up in heaven. And when we loose someone from the bonds of sin, when we free them from the bonds of sin, they are freed from sin in heaven as well. Amen. The Lord has given us this amazing power, yes. this authority. He has given us the authority to be saved. Are you saved? He has given us the authority and the ability to further his kingdom. How are you furthering his kingdom? Steve Jobs used to go through the halls of Apple doing his daily rat killing. And if you were an employee of Apple and you saw Steve Jobs coming up the hallway, you might want to duck into a side room somewhere. He was not a fun guy to get along with. But if you got into an elevator and you're an employee of Apple and Steve Jobs wound up getting into the elevator with you, he would ask you a question. What have you done for Apple today? What have you done for this company today? How have you advanced our mission today? And that's, that can be a hard question to answer if you spent the morning at the water cooler. We used to get that question at State Farm. What have you done for State Farm today? I've had that question asking me various companies I've worked for. I've worked for a lot of companies. I had a man tell me, obviously, I can't keep down a job. But, you know, bosses will ask their employees that. What have you done for the company today? And you better have an answer. What have you done for God today? What have you done for his kingdom today? What have you done for the Lord this past week? It's a convicting question. He's given you the power and the authority to advance his kingdom. What are we doing with that? You see the power of God. Are we willing to trust him and surrender to him? We see the power of Christ. Are we willing to turn to him and to trust him and to accept the salvation he has given us and the grace that he freely has given? And we see the authority that he's given us to carry out his kingdom and to further his kingdom. Are we willing 
to do that. Let us stand.